0: Welcome to The Good Book Club Podcast, where we make all our episodes and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. This podcast is our The Good Book Club discussion of The Woman They Could Not Silence, One Woman, Her Incredible Fight for Freedom, and The Men Who Tried to Make Her Disappear by Kate Moore, with the discussion led by book club member Cindy. In this riveting true story, Civil War-era housewife and mother, Elizabeth Packard is placed in a mental institution by her husband because of her intellect, independence, and unwillingness to stifle her own thoughts. As she navigates her new traumatic existence, she meets others in the same situation and realizes that no one is willing to fight for their freedom and they cannot possibly fight for themselves. She then becomes a woman on a mission in this incredible tale of human resilience and overcoming great trials against all odds to rise triumphant. We learned so much from Elizabeth's story, and we know you will too. This book club meeting was originally recorded on Sunday, July 9th, 2023.
1: Welcome everybody to The Good Book Club. It is our July edition. It's July 9th and we are really excited to be here. We have a couple slides to start out and then we'll jump right into our discussion of our amazing book today. So we're going to start by reading our, I can't even talk today, The Good Book Club mission statement and we're going to have Landon read that. We always read this at the beginning of each meeting to remind us of why we're here and what our purpose
2: is. All right. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies.
1: Thank you very much, Landon. I always like to hear that read. It means a lot. It took us a while to come up with it, but I think it really clearly states what we're all about. Um, just a quick recap. We had a couple little ad hoc book club events for those that are here in Utah. Um, we actually took a trip to Idaho to visit the backyard professor. There he is right there in the middle. We connected with some book club members, um, brother of Zelf and sister of Zelf, and some Mormonish viewers. Ron Jorgensen was there. So it was really fun. Um, and there's the backyards. His backyard is incredible. Let's just say that (laughs) it was really, really fun. Yeah. And then on the 4th of July, um, Tom and I run or help run a big flag uh, ceremony in a canyon here in Utah County. We had uh, Jackie and Greg Landon book club members come help us with that. And it was really, really fun. So we hope everybody had a a great kickoff to summer with the 4th of July, which was just passed. So coming up, um, we have the announcement of our book list for next year now for those of you that don't know our season goes from september to september so august will be the conclusion of everything that we put together the year before so what we did we solicited categories everybody voted on that we got the categories then we asked for book club suggestions we had those rolling in through the last month um we didn't get tons this time so what we did is we took those we took some of the runners up from last year. We kind of smashed everything together. We we ran them through the categories and we came up with this, what I think is a pretty amazing list. We're not going to go over the whole thing right now. This is September to September. We're going to post this list on our Facebook page, on Instagram. We're also going to send it out through email. So we'll have a chance to look at this, but it's going to be really good. We are really, really excited about all the titles that you guys suggested. So I'm really excited Rebecca, you for you
2: You might want to explain what we're doing in September with the September book. Okay, I can go over that really quick
1: if you want to run back. Yeah, that's a great idea. So in September of this year, there are several new books about the Mountain Meadows Massacre that have come out. We have also read some books in our book club in the past about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and we just can't seem to talk about it enough. So we thought that September, because that is the anniversary on the 11th of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, what we would do is we would sort of have a mashup of Mountain Meadows Massacre's books. Pick your favorite, pick one you haven't read yet. There's several ones there, Blood of the Prophets, Massacre of Mountain Meadows. Um, the new one, Vengeance is Mine by Barbara Brown and Richard Turley. Mountain Meadows Massacre, the original by Juanita Brooks. There's a new one, Convicting the Mormons, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Some of these are written from a more faithful point of view. Some are written from more of a post Mormon. Some are written for just, you know, right in the middle, never, never Mormon. Or even if you don't choose to read one of these books, read information about it. And we'll just come and have a really interesting discussion from all the different points of view. I think this is going to be great. And that'll be for September.
3: Okay, coming up on Tuesday, that's two days from now,
1: we have our The Good Book Club bonus event. It's kind of a mashup with Mormon Book Reviews and the Mormon Stories Book Club. Everybody's sponsoring it. This is the amazing Chris Thomas. His book is called Unexpected, The Backstory of Finding Elizabeth Smart and Growing Up in the Culture of an American Religion. Um, He grew up as a faithful Mormon. He still is a nuanced Mormon. Um, His book talks about growing up in the church, like all of us did, but it's really about him finding himself at a very young age, 29, becoming the media spokesperson for the smart family during the Elizabeth Smart ordeal, and it is absolutely fascinating to hear him discuss the backstory, the police involvement, working with the news networks, the newscasters. It is absolutely fascinating. I think all of us lived through this. Um, If you haven't read the book, please just come and attend. He's a wonderful guest, and it's going to be really interesting to talk about this topic for those of us that remember it and were impacted by it. So that's on Tuesday. Um, other books on the radar in the Mormon Stories Book Club that I help run, like I said, Vengeance is Mine. That is the next one we're going to be discussing. And if you read it, then you're all set for September too. So it's kind of a twofer. On the very back burner, of course, is Charisma, Um under pressure. That's Dan Vogel's book about Joseph Smith. It's a gajillion pages long and not on <laughs> audiobook. So that's why we say it may be on back burner for six months. Who knows? But anyway, it's a great book if you want to get it and, and kind of sample through that. Let's see. Okay. Do we have a slide about the Deborah 3D event? That is one thing I just realized that uh, we may not have a slide on. So I'll just talk about that really quick. Coming up on the 15th, that is next Saturday, there is a Reader's Theater that is going to be put on through the Entrada Institute and you can access this live event through Facebook. It is a reading of a play called the mountain meadows um, written by an amazing playwright deborah 3d we've talked about this before um, this play was put in on in salt lake and we were like dang it no one's going to get to see this it is now actually going to be a live streamed event, a reader's theater on Saturday night, seven o'clock, Saturday the 15th, um, through Facebook, through the Entrada Institute. So I'll get more information out that on, about that on Facebook and Instagram and email, but just I cannot encourage you enough to listen to this. It's an incredible play about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, next, oh, and I forgot to hold this up, unexpected, um, next month. Last month of our 2023 uh, September to September season is The Unfolding of Language by Guy Dutcher, and Luann is going to be giving our discussion, and at the end of our discussion today, she'll be giving us a little preview of the book. So this is our book for next month. All right, all that being said, (laughs) that brings us now to our amazing book for July, the woman they could not silence, the shocking story of a woman who dared to fight back. And our wonderful discussion leader is Cindy Badger. So
3: right now we will turn it all over to Cindy. Thank you. You're, you're muted, Cindy. Cindy's muted a little bit. And I there made the go. classic Zoom mistake.
1: <laughs> Everyone does it. You can't be on Zoom without doing it. So I'll start over. <laughs> We're going to turn it on over to Cindy.
4: <laughs> All right. I was just mentioning that if I sound a little echoey, it's because my whole house is empty. We don't have our furniture yet. We just moved from Japan to Virginia. So um, hopefully it's not too bad. So this was my second time reading this book and still as good and maddening as as it was the first time. Um, But I I know that some people may not have read it at all or may not have finished. And so I'm just going to give a little background on the author's answers about why she read it and a little bit about Elizabeth Packard, the main character. Um, so the author, was in answering the question how she just dis- discovered Elizabeth's story and why she wanted to write about her, she said, before I even knew her name, I actively went looking for Elizabeth's story, the background to that quest. In the fall of 2017, the world was set ablaze with the, by the Me Too movement, and I wanted to write about some of the issues being raised. Namely, why hadn't women been listened to and believed before? Too often, it seemed to me, women had been silenced and discredited with the claim that we were crazy. Were there any women in history, I wondered, who had been declared insane by a patriarchal society for speaking her mind, but had, who had somehow, against the odds, proved her sanity and prevailed? Because I wanted a happy ending for my book. I went in search of this mystery woman, only hoping she existed. And on January 15th, 2018, after having fallen down a rabbit hole of internet searches about women in madness and insane asylums, I first read about Elizabeth Packard in a University of Wisconsin essay that I randomly found online. That first reference was just a single paragraph in length, but a few Google clicks later, having learned a little more about her life, I was hopeful I had found the central protagonist of my next book. I noted in my diary, she looked promising. Yet it wasn't until I completed my due diligence reading the other books about her that existed at that time. So as to be sure that my vision for her story, a work of narrative nonfiction, hadn't already been published, I knew for definite she was the one. Um, And then just uh, another, this little bit about Elizabeth gives you kind of an overview of what she was like. Um, The author said, I think Elizabeth's strength strength is absolutely remarkable. Ultimately, I think the bedrock to it was that she knew she was in the right, but even more remarkably, she maintained the confidence to insist on that truth, something with which some of us struggle. Her faith clearly helped too. Um, So just a real quick overview of the book. Um, In the time that the book is set, Elizabeth uh, is a woman with no rights, basically. When married, well, women in general uh, belonged to their, hus- their fathers until they were married, then they were their, their spouses. And um, men could commit women to insane asylums for basically any reason. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth Sin was having an opinion and having religious differences with her husband, basically, and stating those and trying to raise her children in the way that she felt was right and teach them the version of God that she believed in. And, um, and that got her into a lot of trouble, but, uh, she also did like the author said, just persevere and just stuck with what she knew to be true and truth that she wasn't crazy, that she had every right to have an opinion and share it and, and live her truth. So can't wait to talk about her with all of you and, hear your thoughts um so i just wanted to start with maybe just like general thoughts like what how are you all feeling after reading this am i getting i'm not seeing the
2: there we go great view bruce is raising his hand yeah can you see that Cindy
4: I can now yeah okay. I wasn't at first but I'm seeing it
2: now no just my
5: my general um concept was uh I see that the legacy of that concept still today uh, I talked to my brother uh last year I think it was and he called me and I said where are you at and he goes oh I'm in the four-year of the church and I'm going, what are you doing there? And he says, oh, I, I have to be the priesthood holder while the Relief Society women meet. And these were all older women. Well, I'm like, okay, so these older women can't be in a church building alone. I I just see, it seems like this concept is is still with us. Definitely. So, so that was just my my original thought as I started listening to the book.
4: Yeah,
6: um, Lynette, did you want to? Yeah, thank you. Um, I just remember thinking how strong of a person Elizabeth was. I'm pretty sure I would not have been able to keep my cool. And you know, when she gets thrown into the worst part of the mental institution, how she starts cleaning, I think I would have been more angry than that. But she just treated everyone so kindly and started making it a better place. And he...
2: think she froze up.
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: Give her a second. Um, maybe, Landon, you want to share?
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I was shocked when I first read it that I, I had no idea that you could just put somebody in a mental institution with really no evaluation from the doctors. It, it was almost like uh, that a husband could just put his wife in jail if he wanted to, uh, simply by saying that she was she was nuts. And uh, you know, I think, I think all of us would put our spouse in jail eventually if we <laughs> had the choice for at least a time. but uh, this was just horrible. And then the fact that she was completely sane and had no way to get out, and no matter what a pill she made, or whoever she appealed to, it it kept falling on deaf ears, and she was clearly lucid and very uh, uh, she, she she well well spoken, well written, and even with that, she couldn't get out. that That was, as I read through it, that was the surprising thing to me is that she basically had no no way out as long as as long as the doctor or her husband were willing to keep saying she was insane. Uh, she she really had no leg to stand on and that was just horrifying it felt like like you were just trapped you know uh,
4: right you know they used the word unnatural behavior right so they had like that idea of what a woman should act and, and she wasn't acting that way that oh she's she's hysteric she's crazy um
3: let's see is it raya is that how you say your name <laughs>
7: uh it's been interesting it was interesting to me reading it because um I felt the less extreme version of that in the culture still today in my own personal life even as a child um I had um airway issues so I could bear- couldn't breathe very well and I was had a lot of chronic pain, even as a young child. And, um, even, and my family just treated me like I didn't have anything to say. And like, I was shy. And then as I got older and I started to use my voice more, even when I still had airway issues. So my voice was always quieter than it should be based on how emotional I was on a lot of things. And so it, it it was, they still like even recently my family would um, plug in um, maybe you're this sensitive because you're autistic and maybe you're this because you're autistic and nothing wrong with being autistic because there are many wonderful people who are autistic and I'm friends with people who are and it's nothing wrong with that but it was always plugged in to cover up my story and make my pain and my experience less than and less important and less valid in its own space and its own right. And then was also in my, with my first husband that was abusive and just like trying to leave that relationship was so so hard, even in my own family, because there was this kind of expectation that if I'm saying no, and I'm speaking out and saying, don't do that to me, if it doesn't make a big deal to you, then then maybe you're just crazy. And I mean, they didn't use the word crazy, but they often would interrupt what I was trying to explain and what I was trying to share my experience of things to say, oh, maybe you're just sensitive to that because you're autistic. And it, it was used kind of in the same way of like, you're, you're just feeling that way because you're crazy. And it kind of felt the way it was put on to me.
3: You're muted, Cindy. There we go. Um,
4: Yeah, so I just was thinking about how your, you know, your truth was not being acknowledged and, um, like, you know you, <laughs> and that was being ignored and denied by the people who should have been supporting you. And it was the same thing for, for Elizabeth. There were people in power who could have stopped all of this, um, but they ignored her and, and stuck to the narrative that her husband had, had written about her. Uh, I think Lara has been waiting for a little while.
8: Okay, great. So some of my thoughts, um, it, I just recently, again, came across the quote from Packer from 93, that he said, the biggest threat to religion is feminism, the gays, and intellectuals. And I'm like, well, I'm at least two of the three of those, right? (laughs) And that's what I thought with like Elizabeth too, was like, simply because she thought for herself and had a different Point of view, like she was deemed insane, like just because you disagreed with your husband or saw something differently, you were deemed insane. And to kind of talk about the trickle, right? That was just in 1993. And interestingly enough, when I was verifying that quote just this morning, um, I just did a search for it. And I like to always go to like the church source too, because it's like, if you're in the church, you can't really argue with that, right? You can't say it didn't happen, right? <laughs> it comes from their website. And so, when it was on their website, it was actually published in 2015 as part of his obituary so it was like his legacy to have said that like as recently as 2015 and so yeah it just kind of made me reflect on that and how it is still just so pertinent and pervasive even still particularly in the LDS culture but I'd say honestly in a lot of society at large um, that you know Like the word hysterical comes, you know, it ties in like with your uterus and that kind of thing. And these are like not good things to be. Um, one other example is a podcast I was recently listening to, and it was um, long story short, these women who were doing IVF treatments and the nurse was stealing the painkillers and uh the pain medication. And so they were experiencing all the pain of this procedure. And same kind of thing. They weren't really listened to, they were kind of just ridden off like we're doing the best that we can. Like you must just have a really low pain tolerance or you just must be, um, intolerant to these drugs or you, you know, calm down. There was a lot of calm down. And I think that again, that all still plays into what we're experiencing, you know, nowadays. Um, one thing I like to do when I read books, especially historical is I try to take myself back to that zone and like recognize that who I am is also a product of, the time that I grew up in. And so though I feel that I am like a strong, outspoken woman who would stand up for myself, I think that it was particularly incredible that Elizabeth was able to pull that off, being that she was also the product of her time. Um, because if you if you plot me back in that time zone, I don't know that I would be that amazing um, and that brave as she was. And so I don't think, I mean, I think even now as we stand up for ourselves and everything, we it kind of can be heroes, right? but particularly given the time and the culture, she was just so incredible. Like she's one of my favorite people now. So I love reading this book.
4: Yeah, definitely like a hero. I don't know how she, she just kept going. <laughs> um, there's, you know, part of me that I'm, I'm like, I would have gotten out and I would have been like, okay, I'm just going <laughs> to stay quiet over here. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know if I even would have gotten out though. I probably would have just try to be a good little patient and get out as soon as possible. Um, One of the things, so the author's website, if you're curious at all, she's got like a reading guide on there. Um, And one of the things she brought up that made me think of when you were talking was um, the equal opportunity act was passed until 1974. And um, until then, like women couldn't even, get a credit card for themselves so even though there were changes between Elizabeth's time and that time like full independence still wasn't really available legally until until that time so it's it's a long uh I don't know we had our culture is still unlearning right because we know that there are earlier cultures that where women were more independent but um the strong patriarchal structure of Western European culture post Christianity is definitely still impacting us. Um, let's see. I think Nancy's Nancy-
9: been there. Nancy, yeah, been there
4: yeah. Nancy, you
6: want to share? Sure. Um, I wanted to just express my appreciation for Elizabeth and other women like her. That even though, even in 2023, there's still strides that need to be made for women and for other minorities. Um, And yet without women like her and people like her, we wouldn't be where we are. So I'm really grateful for that. Also, I was really surprised, I suppose, by how um, her story and her religious awakening um, mirrored some of my own and I, I didn't know to, you know, it just kind of surprised me as I was reading through it. And I thought she went through an awakening, um, and it was over time because there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and I'm sure we'll talk more about, um, Dr. McFarland, but this idea of coverture that a woman's, um, was protected by her husband Um, that sounds maybe like a good thing, but it also ended up all these other maybe unintended negative consequences of that, where she couldn't own any property. She could be institutionalized without a trial, um, and how she transferred that idea to Dr. McFarland, that she thought she needed a man to be her protection And then over time, we see that she realized she could provide that for herself. It was a radical idea at that time, but just a beautiful thing. And in some ways, it's interesting. Um, I've gone through some of the similar things myself, Um, having gone through a divorce and leaving the church, uh, some of those same ideas. That I was looking for, okay, well, if it's not the church, if it's not this marriage, then what is it that's going to, to be there for me? And realizing, oh, well, it's myself. It's me.
3: I love that. Thank you for sharing that.
6: think
4: um, we'll finish up here. We got Jennifer and then Sean, and then maybe we'll kind of start going through some response questions. So, Jennifer?
10: Um, Yes, thank you. Um, I just wanted to also mirror everybody else's, what they've been saying about how much they um, just admire Rebecca. I just, I was so in awe of her. She is such a role model for me. Um, And one of the things that she wrote that just really resonated with me was she would not submit to him. As she put it, a peace based on injustice is a treacherous sleep whose waking is death your honor lies in waking out of it. And I really resonated with that. Um, I just thought I was in this most peaceful religion, that this religion brought me so much joy and peace. And one of the things that actually brought me out of the Mormon church was misogyny in the church. And um, I hope that I can be like her. And I hope that all women can just stand up and just say, we're not going to take it anymore." we are equal to men, and we're not going to be undermined anymore. And I just love her, and just want to say how thankful I am that you recommended this book. I had always always known that women were put into insane asylums, but I never knew how. How did this happen? And so I just really appreciate uh, reading this book, and I really appreciate Rebecca. She is a badass that I want to be like. Some that I want to be like right now. So thank you. Um. I really love what,
4: what you shared, but also I wanted to point out too, because yeah, like, um, women and women, women's role within the church and like the eternal scheme of things um, was one of the big reasons I left the church as well. Um, You know, polygamy in particular. Um, But one thing that I think is so important too, is that like, yes, like she was independent and doing it, but she had she had to have the help of men because it was a men, you know, a man's world. And so there were men legislators and lawyers and doctors that supported her along the way. And I think it's so important. Like we have some really great men here in the group who are, you know, doing that work too there because women can't do it by themselves. Like there have to be good men who are willing to share power and speak truth to power in uh realms where you know women's voices won't be heard all right sean let's hear from you
11: hi i'm sean coming to you from southern michigan um i'm really grateful for this uh this reading assignment this is one of those books where it's just completely off my radar and i probably never would have thought to even pick it up and read it had it not been for the the book club but uh but Elizabeth has become one of my heroes. Um, she was a force to be reckoned with. And it was that that very fact that she was a force to be reckoned with, which was considered insanity. And, and I look at my situation, I'm, I'm, I'm Pimo, so I'm physically and mentally out. So I'm still active, uh, attending church and whatnot. But I think that if I were to start speaking my mind the way that Elizabeth you know, gave the example of speaking her mind that people would think I would belong in an insane insane asylum. And, and so I, I, I understand better after reading this, the fear and the, you know, the risk. (laughs) And I mean, I recognize my privilege, um, but it's real. And it's something that, that I wrestle with all the time. And, uh, this just kind of helped encourage me and give me a little. Uh, courage to uh, to maybe speak up a little bit more, and uh, and say what I think, and and not consider myself crazy, but you know, not worry too much about what other people think either.
4: Yeah, I mean, we have so many examples of people who have stood up, and you know, while still being in the church, and then facing consequences, maybe being excommunicated. But I saw a quote recently, and I don't remember. Where it was from, so I apologize about that, but it uh, was just to the effect that if you are not standing close enough to get hit by the rocks being thrown, then you're not a good ally. And so I think we can all kind of think about that too, like in in regards of, you know, this, while it's not like the same uh, situation for women or minorities or anything uh, that it was back then, there are still lots of situations where, people are are not being treated the way they're supposed to and, you know, which which role in this story are we going to to play for sure. All right. Um, So, obviously, uh, Elizabeth's religious views are a central part of this story because it's when she finds her voice and what really gets her out of I don't know, just like living the day to day, being okay, um, tolerating her life that maybe she thought was fine, but then she had like that awakening. Um, so, what do you, what are your thoughts about her religious situation, her husband's opinions, um, living through that kind of phase of of Christianity when there were. Schisms because of things like like slavery and stuff like that. Just general thoughts about her religious situation and, and how she came to it. Um, Let's see, got uh, Landon, and then we'll go to Daniel next.
2: All right, I cut in line in front of Daniel. <laughs> uh, no, I, I could completely relate because I feel that very same way with with uh, me leaving the church. I think my entire family thinks I'm crazy because how could I possibly have walked away from such a wonderful church and a gospel that brings so much joy and happiness to the family? Uh, my my mother has told me that, you know, a couple of times that, you know, uh, she, she hasn't said it to my face, but she's told my sister and that, that he's an apostate. He's just read too much and has too much knowledge. He's overthinking things. And uh i think the rest of the family you know points to their kids and says oh this is what happens you know when uh you know your uncle landon he uh he he went out and stepped out and you know this is what happens to you you when you lose faith and all of that so i i i could i think my family might do that to me if if they could so i i completely understood how tough it is uh just because you have a different belief that those around you can, can think that you're you're maybe somehow uh not completely there mentally
4: yeah i remember so i had a a good friend at byu and we took a um we took a class together it was and it, we went over it's a uh, psychology class but we went over like all the or philosophy class sorry not psychology philosophy class and so uh we had a lot of fun in that class together he and i both were really into philosophy and like, no, the meaning of life kind of stuff. Um, and then fast forward, he, I, I stayed friends with him and his wife and, um, we had our firstborn kids around the same age and we would visit each other when we were passing through the country and, um, and things, but, he left the church. And I remember thinking like, Oh man, he just reasoned his way out of the church. He just, you know, he was too into his intellectualism because I knew him and knew that that was like his passion. And so that was, you know, my thing was like, Oh, that must be why. <laughs> and I'm sure that there are people now who are saying similar things about me. So that's really fun. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Daniel, do you want to.
3: Hey. Daniel, you're on. Your something's
2: wrong with it. your. Yeah, you sound like Mickey Mouse. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck up some helium. Are you doing helium again? <laughs> nope. No.
4: You want to type it in the comments for now. That, and we- better now, out. Know. There we go. <laughs>
12: yeah,
9: something weird right. is happening. There it's we go. Uh, there we sorry. Go um to me one of the worst things that happened in this book was to realize that a lot of the impetus of this was money um that aspect of it that she had different views more liberal views about religion and god and and all those things and her husband seemed to be kind of okay with it initially but then there was someone who gave him a bunch of money and had more conservative views and said basically you need to shut your wife up like you know i'm giving you all this money shut your wife up and that Elizabeth's husband did this largely for money, and uh, it was really so sad, but kind of understandable, you know, like, you know, they always have the saying when you want to get to the root of something, follow the money, and, you know, what was the root cause, and unfortunately, with religion, as we've seen in, in our own past religion, a lot of times, it's really about the money, which is really sad.
4: Yeah. I mean, she was threatening his career by, you know, cause there was the schism in the, in the congregation and, um, he was going a more conservative way and she was leading people to a more progressive idea of Christian Christianity. And yeah, that was, uh, one of the other book club I was in, I remember one of like, just the poignant comments this one made, like, why didn't he just like talked to her about his job you know like this is my job and maybe they could have figured something out together but it was all like he was so solid in his little patriarchal brain that he just had to
3: you know have it be his way or the highway Literal, I mean literally <laughs> let's see sorry I forgot uh Sam did you want to share
13: Yeah, so I'm at the airport, so I joined a little late, but I really love this book. I think you're you're mentioning that uh, that patriarchal certitude that that was present. I kind of that was kind of a theme for me. This unshackling that Elizabeth had to go through kind of mirrored a lot of our own experience and the very various ways we've had to unshackle. Um, I think from just the certitudes of the thought pendulums that exist around us. one thing that kind of stood out to me was on page 317 during the trial, Deacon Dole was like, she would not leave the church unless she was insane. You know, I'm a member of the church. I believe the church is right. I believe everything the church does is right. I believe everything in the Bible. And so um, there was this certitude and you could see that in, um, in Dr. McFarland and the, he was just so sure of her insanity and despite all the evidence He he never questioned himself. And I think that sometimes uh, in having to fight against the certitude of those around us, respecting their own certitude, but then being able to unshackle from that so that we can find our own values and our own truth. Um, I love on page 157 where she says, she feared nothing now but God. She was not afraid of men she said, I can stand on my own feet. I don't have to be running around to find some tree to climb on. I am a tree myself. And I thought that was so beautiful because you just see this process of uh, Elizabeth unshackling from the, the certitudes of her time and how you just see it kind of trickle down into our own century and things have gotten better and some things are getting more polarized and entrenched. And it's just this it's being able to stand back and see the see the larger view, and that people have had to deal with this in all sorts of generations and times. And it was really neat to hear it from the woman's perspective, and I was just in shock. And it was just an incredible page turner. But I just I love that idea of unshackling that she had to go through this through this entire novel. So that's what I wanted to share. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you
4: so. So spot on. I think like so many of us can understand that. Um, is it Chandra, Chandra,
14: it's Chandra. Hi, um, this book. So I just found out we went to the Highland Thrive Group, and so I just found out about the book club like on Thursday. So I I read. I've only read about half the book. Um, so far as how far I've gotten, but just the name of the book spoke to me because I am very much a loud, outspoken, um, woman. And there are so many things that I, I could talk about that, um, I mean, and so right now you, you wanted to talk about the church aspect of it and, and how with, with religion and how she felt in, um, in having that change in religion and, and everything that yours have been saying. And I, I feel like, um, Like, I just relate to that so much in, and I feel like that's the epitome of, of how I've always felt in, in the Mormon church, right? Is that because I'm loud, because I'm outspoken, because, you know, if my husband got a calling and I, they would, they would bring the husband and wife in and say, you know, do you support? And I would say, no, I don't. (laughs) Right. Like there were consequences, me doing that or saying that um because if I needed him and my husband he's not on here I kept telling him you need to come on I know you haven't read the book yet but you need to be on here because he you know you talk about having these male advocates right and he's come a long way and I think that um it's understanding like seeing it and and understanding where he sees it all the time. You know, we have children with IEPs. It, it's in every culture, like, aspect of life. It's religion. It's, it's um, you know, schools. It's wherever we are, there really is this difference. And me and my husband have kids with disabilities that we we go to IEP meetings all the time. And we got to the point where I was like, okay, this is the conversation that we're having at home. You need to say it because when I say it, I don't know if we're allowed to swear, this, but I, I'm the, I'm the bitch. Like I, I am the woman. I'm, I'm either I'm mean. I'm, I'm emotional. I'm, I'm outspoken. But he, he is. He could say the same exact thing that I say, and he is. He is reasonable and he's calm. And like, and there's it doesn't matter if I say it calmly. It doesn't matter if I say it in a different way. It is taken differently when it is coming from him. And that's how it is in every aspect in our family life with his family. I've always been like, oh, you're overwhelming. Oh, you're too loud. You're it's it's never positive. There's never been a positive. And so I sit here and there's all these things I want to say and I, I put my hands up on this even and then I'm like, no, I'll take it off. And I put my hand on and I take it off because I have PS, like PTSD from like raising my hand and being like every time I open my mouth, it's negative. And I do feel like I have value. I do feel like I have something to say. And so this, this book really touched me and I think it, it was, I want my husband to still read it because I think he gets it. He understands it. And I appreciate that he sees that and understands it and is that advocate that, that he needs to be for, for our family.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, my husband, my husband's in the air force and um, we've lived on base um, since he joined almost 10 years ago. And whenever I need like to know that something's going to happen, (laughs) If it's something that he can do on base, I'll have him go, you know, during the work because and he's going in, he's the active duty member, he's the sponsor, um, he's in uniform, like, people take him more seriously versus me, like, there's, like, this culture in the military, they call us, they call women dependas sometimes, and, like, you know, that we're... Selfish, we were asking too much, things like that. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm not that person. Like, I did not marry my husband for TRICARE, I promise. (laughs) But I I do have rights, and I do, you know, my family has rights, and and it's okay to stand up for those rights. So, yeah, it's really hard sometimes. Uh, Bruce?
5: Yeah, along those lines, um, when I started working, you know, this was 40 years ago at a large insurance company, and I was brand new you know, I'd been around, I'd been on a mission, been around, you know, university a long time and stuff. So I wasn't completely new, but somebody was talking to a lady who was training me, uh, an African-American woman. And this guy goes, I want to talk to the president of the company. And she just calmly said, okay, um, I'll have somebody from his office give you a call. And then she just turns to me and says, "Call the guy back and just tell him the same thing I told him. And I called him back, and because I was a guy, and I said, nope, this is, you know, this is how the contract works. He accepted it. You know, he was speaking with a much senior, more senior female minority and could tell that and wasn't taking it. But when they put the new kid on the phone, could speak a little authoritatively uh one of the things that mission helped you know give confidence on yeah and and i'm just going like boy you know what we're seeing in the book is still pretty much all around us so that's my thoughts
4: yeah um i was just thinking about how she um like she said something in her presentation to the board um, about the, the Holy Ghost being female, um, and how they like reacted so hugely to that, but then you know the author gave context about how that was actually not that unusual of thought process. That that was you know something that had been talked about by religious philosophers before and still, and um, and I you know, but it came from a woman. So
3: of course that must be a sign that she's insane. Let's see, any other thoughts about, about the religious
4: aspect? I'm sure it'll come up again before we when in the conversation, but we can move on. Um, yeah, Shauna.
15: Um, I just wanted to share this came up just now. Um, so a couple of years ago, probably several years ago, I was, I had a niece who was in the middle of, uh, she had left the church and I was the only family member that she had told and that was supporting her. I was still in the church and, and I was telling my now ex-husband, then husband about it and kind of trying to explain her perspective and why she was having difficulties and he said to me I'm really worried about you you sound like you're going down the same path and I need to stop that basically because I'm the priesthood holder in this home and you need to stop that and it was that I had never I didn't know he was like that or that he was thinking that way. This was like 30 years of marriage and I had no idea that he would ever say something like that or feel that way because apparently I found out later he's deathly afraid of conflict. Um, And I was so shocked by that, that I just shut down and wouldn't say anything to him um, about my own faith issues uh, for years because because of the way he reacted, it just blew me away that he took such a patriarchal perspective on the whole thing and was telling me that I was not allowed to think that way. It just it, yeah, that was that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> when I finally did tell him what I thought about the church, um he divorced me.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
15: So yeah. it was it was a good thing. But anyway, that was
4: <laughs> that's Yeah, I mean it's re- sorry go ahead. Um I think that um it's really easy to like paint her husband in this like really like broad stroke like sim- like some simpl- simplify him to like oh he was a bad guy he was just like trying to control her but I mean he had also been I'm sure he was a product of his own religious upbringing. It was probably a very patriarchal it seemed very uh it was a very uh, fear-based religious upbringing it seems like like he you know didn't like them being lighthearted in the home he didn't um his was a very uh mean god who would punish you for for things whereas elizabeth's idea of god was you know love and and wanting people to be happy and, and she never danced before she's in the asylum you know um so anyway I think yeah just going back to like your husband had this, that part of him that you didn't even realize but like that it, he was a product you know Landon joked that he must have had a lesson in, in priesthood um but yeah I mean we're, we are not just the men but the men in particular are steeped in that idea of like they are responsible for their family's spiritual well-being and i'm sure like the packard's situation was very similar he felt he saw his wife and children at risk you know and he had to stop it um so i thought it was interesting some other reasons oh sorry we'll catch you jennifer real quick and then we'll move on
10: Um, I totally agree what you're saying, but it's not just the men who are so steeped in that it's also the women, the women are also so steeped in that I mean so much of the misogyny that I learned was from my own mother, telling me things, you know, like a woman's place is to follow her husband wherever she goes. And um, it just, I, I hope that by me leaving the church somehow we can, I can be an example to others that it's not right. And I just wanted to add that it's just not the men. It's it's also the women too, because we've been so conditioned. I know everyone here is raised in the church. We've been conditioned from the moment that we were born, that men have the authority and that we have none. And it um, breaks my heart. That's my husband agreeing with me. If you were watching, my husband's putting his thumbs up. So thank you. Let, I just wanted to add that. That was my thought. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.
4: All right, Chandra, we'll let, you, we'll let you finish that thought off.
14: Thank you. So absolutely, like I loved what you said because that, we and my husband talk about that all the time. Like since we've left, I talk about all of these like grief and losses that I feel from like, you know, he had this plan, we had to follow this plan, but the conversation that we always have is, but it wasn't your fault. <laughs> like I followed that too because- I that's what I thought that we I was doing. I thought that I was making my own choices. I thought that I was being independent. I thought that I was doing my thing. But it but that's the conversation we always have is I know it's I have these grief and losses for following you, for not speaking up, for not doing what I wanted to do. And now we're in this situation where it's even harder for me because we have so many kids that for me to to go off and do my own thing isn't the same as it was when we were first starting out. But that's the biggest takeaway is that it wasn't it all him. Like I followed in that path as well. And I need to take my responsibility for also um, like having those grief and losses, but knowing that he didn't like force my hand in it. We both felt like that's how we were both supposed to do it. Anyways, that was it. I just loved that.
5: Yeah, and just a quick point, not everyone here is a former Mormon. We have uh, at least two people I know <clears throat> that are never Mormons that are my friends. And Karin uh, serves the purpose of being the what the fuck response when she hears all of this stuff. Because uh, she and she and Jeff are, are, are friends uh, that come to the book club regularly, and they don't come from a Mormon background, so they can give us a little perspective at
4: times. I love having the never Mormon uh, voice in a conversation. I I was in a in Japan on base. We had a an ex Mormon support group. It was pretty great, um, and we had an ex Evangelical join us because there wasn't something similar for her. And um, I remember the first night she came, and we were all swapping stories. And she's like, "I thought my background was crazy, but Mormons are nuts." <laughs> so.
3: Anyway, that
5: was... j- just to, yeah, Karen, are, are you wanting to say, so? you're, you're muted, Karin.
12: I can't see well enough to find the hand, so I do this. <laughs> um, you know, I just wanted to say that I'm probably the oldest one in this group. And I remember when women couldn't get credit cards women couldn't do a lot of things. And it wasn't until I divorced my first husband and we closed out all of our credit cards and he immediately opened up all of those in his name only, I couldn't get any. And in 1974, that was the first year that FHA would allow women, but they had to be single head of household women allowed those are the first women that were allowed to get an FHA loan. And it was a woman realtor that was a friend of mine that said, We are finding you a house. And I bought my own house in 1974. Wow. And so Irene, mean, you know, a lot of you women are so much younger, you don't remember. You've heard about it, but I actually experienced it. And, and it also it was very hard for a woman, a single woman to rent. A house so my brother told me to come and live with him he was getting ready to move he was single and he said come and live with me my landlady's gonna love you she's gonna love your daughter and you're gonna be fine she doesn't know yet that i'm leaving so my brother and i actually lived together for two months and that's how i got into a, a house before i bought my own mm-hmm. so anyway
4: No, thank you for sharing. Yeah, And,
12: you know, I haven't gotten the book yet. Uh, Braille sent it to me, but I haven't received it yet. And I am eager to read it. I think it'll be really interesting. And this this discussion has been uh, wonderful for me. I think that Mormons have a certain experience, but it's not too unlike some other groups of people.
4: Yeah. Um, Kind of actually playing off that, so Dr. Duncanson, the doctor who supported Elizabeth and her trial, um, he said, I do not agree with her on many things, but I do not call people insane because they differ with me. So, um, I mean, we don't necessarily see people locked up in asylums anymore for having opposing points of view, but maybe we can talk a little bit about what it's like and you know what it was like then and what it's like now and when people have opposing views and and polarization and how that's that affects society and relationships and Bruce you want to go ahead and start
5: yeah um just the being locked up um let's see I for years I ran the ex-mormon meetup in Los Angeles and we had a, a young guy who was in our group that was suicidal all the time, and he was from a prominent Mormon family, and he'd been put in one of those problem youth places in Utah because he came out as gay, and they did kind of physical abusive torture. He he was able to get out when he turned 18 because he, you know, was legally an adult, but he You know, I knew him in his early 20s. He was still suicidal the whole time. And another book that we might consider in the future, if the topic is interesting, is uh, Saving Alex about a girl from, uh, I think, either Victorville or Barstow, California, came out as lesbian. Her parents put her in a non-licensed, non-standard youth home run by members of the church, the bishop. Everybody knew about it she was tortured to the point that they broke all of the vertebrae in her back. And finally, um, somebody at school got her hooked up with a lawyer. And this was just a few years ago. uh, Another really interesting read. So when I was listening to the book, I'm going like, okay, this is still going on for certain people in in the world. And I find it just kind of interesting that the asylums tend to be very common in Utah, to where they're putting people. I mean, the documentary on Paris Hilton being shipped off to one of those places. So just some of my thoughts where I'm going, oh yeah, this is still going on.
4: Yeah, that's true. I mean, the the term crazy or mentally ill um, is used often to discredit people. And especially, you know, like you mentioned, like people in the LGBTQ plus community, um, we see that a lot now. That's the argument, right? That These people are deranged or they are confused or, you know, this is a mental disorder. We need to treat it, not like support their dysphoria, um, things like that. Um, So I think that that's a really great point because, yeah, I I had a friend in high school who was... um, he was put in the Utah Boys Ranch, which was really close to where I lived, because he was gay, and you know they're trying to cure him. I would love to announce that he is now living his best life as a gay man, as a handsome boyfriend. They're in New York right now, enjoying the, their life. So um, I'm glad that he's been able to you know recover at least part part of the way. I, I don't know what kind of day to day you know, consequences he faces for the time that he spent there, but yeah, he was locked up, and they don't, didn't treat those boys very well, I know, for a fact, so. Um, but, like, uh, are there other situations where people, you know, just try to discredit each other as crazy, um, just because they have a different point of view, maybe it could be politics, could be religion could be anything like that like any thoughts that
3: come to mind yeah Sam
13: yeah I mean I think it's important to respect like I think we flourish when there's just a diversity of opinions and I think we live in a very polarized time and like I'm Currently, a volunteer on the Marianne Williamson campaign and a lot of things that we are you know pushing against is just um, she's being called crazy delusional just because she has maybe different she's been she was she's very into um, spirituality and I think it's it's a very beautiful and and a way of ex- expressing spirituality and I I actually agree with a lot of what she says and but I'm very interested in you know her her policies but um she's routinely in the last election and in this election she's called you know you know woo woo crazy and it's just like you know it's just sad to see she I think she's one of the most eloquent ladies whether you believe in her or not like that's like everyone should have a if they meet the qualifications they should be able to run and and so I think that that's just one instance that I'm I've seen personally um, and, you know, in my own path of spirituality, sometimes it's it's, you know, considered out there and or whatever. But but I think it still it still exists and I've seen it a lot in the press. And so just that's a real example of something that I'm seeing being lived through in 2023. So.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's really easy, you know, especially like if you, you know, have been religious and then move away from it or your reaction to religion, then like sometimes spirituality of any sort can seem a little like, oh, they're just fooled or whatever. But you have to, uh, yeah, the diversity of opinion is so important. And that's how, you know, especially if you're in America, I don't know, I think most everyone here is, but um, it's really easy to. Feel like oh we've got it solved, but like the opinion of everyone should have the same opinion actually doesn't work. It doesn't create a good society. It doesn't create good government. You know, doesn't create good communities or village. Like we need different opinions to get to the best solutions. Uh, we'll go for uh, Jeff.
16: Yes, hi everybody. I'm one of Bruce's friends from Pasadena, enjoy through him and. Um, I wanted to say that in psychology, in some of these larger families you have, if someone is particularly um, anxious or depressed or any sort of psychological issue, and it is noted earlier enough, they become what is called the identified patient in psychology, and everybody else in the family kind of lets on that they're totally normal, and this guy gets everything kind of put on him with uh, weird thoughts and weird actions, and how is he doing? I mean, families don't have to be grossly insulting. They can do um, subtle things like, you know, when when this, this person says um, a affirming statement, which may be rare, there's a silence like how can he believe that? How can we it's so awkward, how can we even respond? And there are these little subtle things that that uh have big effects on, on the people. And I think that um that this is this is very similar to to something like what what would be going on in Mormonism or Orthodox Judaism. Uh, there's a silence awkward. How can he how can it be like that? And it just has an effect.
3: Mm -hmm. yeah thank you i've seen yeah i've seen that play
4: out you know i we actually have like the designated patient in my family but it's it's really funny because if i later got diagnosed and i was like oh man like all of this because i was more high functioning like i got ignored (laughs) like my my symptoms like i could have probably been diagnosed so much earlier if we weren't all just looking at my sisterhood manic depressive or, you know, episodes. Um, but anyway, uh, Rebecca.
1: Yeah, I appreciate Jeff's comments that kind of went along with what I was thinking. I was thinking about my time, uh, you know, 58 years in the church, right? Or 55 until I finally stepped away. And you, you do sort of, as a woman, you do sort of start feeling a little crazy and then kind of receding. Like I was thinking about all the times that as a grown woman, I've been told to shh, by a man at church. And maybe some of the other women can relate to this. Maybe you're talking in the hall, or maybe you're having a discussion with another woman. And literally, (laughs) it's totally okay for a male to come up to you and say, shh, right? You also face the situation, I've told the story before, where you don't have power or authority. A child who's a male has more power or authority than you do. There was a time when I tried to go into a room for my youngest son's ordination. It was a, it was a um, 12-year-old class, for those of you that aren't, aren't LDS, um, of men, boys. So my older sons, my yeah. husband, they all walked through the door. And then one of the leaders said, oh, no, stop. You can't come in. We're going to have some business and then we'll let you in. (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, I'm older than everyone in the room, except for my husband. And I'm not allowed to go into the room because I don't have that authority. And you'd make a comment and you make a comment. They let you talk and you definitely get the sense that they let you talk. And then it's just sort of like Jeff said, the silence. Hmm. Okay, and what did you think, brother? You know, and maybe these are extreme examples, but every single one of these things has happened to me as a woman. And I can only imagine too many women in the church. And so eventually you just... First, maybe you think, okay, am I, you know, is there something? And then you just realize, no, it's the way it is. And you sort of recede and you stop trying. Well, in Elizabeth's case, of course, she didn't. She never did, you know, which is which is what's amazing about her story. And it makes me think back and go, God, could I have tried harder? Could I have fought back? Could I have been different? Could I have been more vocal? In my case, I didn't. I just completely Receded, And as Elder Ballard said, put on a little more lipstick, right? If you're not familiar with that quote, Elder Ballard said, we'd love to hear our ladies' voices in the church. We love it. We appreciate what they say. Of course, not too much. Ha ha ha. And put on a little lipstick, you know. And so to me, that's kind of the bottom line. And it's why a lot of women's voices eventually just recede, because As they said, if there were 3 million women in the church, but no man, there would be no wards. There's no authority there. So I don't know if other women have experienced that kind of thing, but especially back in the day, because I'm a little older, that's just the status quo. It is how it is. So this book made me go, dang it. Why wasn't I more like Elizabeth at the time? But (laughs) those are my thoughts.
4: We can't all be Elizabeth. (laughs) We
1: can't all be Elizabeth, but we can certainly learn from it and go forward. That is the lesson Mm -hmm. here for sure.
4: Yeah. Um, Melissa.
6: So I
17: was having a conversation with my husband last week and he just said, you are so much more angry now that you've left the church and i'm like yes yes i am but i don't necessarily like in the church we're taught that anger is like this bad thing to like squish down and you don't want to have anger but i find anger now like when rebecca was telling her story I'm like, oh, it just it makes me rage it, <laughs> way to go trigger me no like hearing stuff like hey. this before i would have ignored it and now i'm just like no this is not okay and it is okay to be about things that are harmful, that are toxic, that are hurting people. It is okay to be angry about those things because I shoved it down and ignored it for so long. So yes, I am more angry now because now I'm letting myself see it and experience it and feel it instead of just shoving it into a little box and trying nice. I'm, I'm not playing nice anymore. I'm feeling my feelings. I'm experiencing my emotions and I'm not okay with what is going on. So yeah, all the anger all the time now.
3: <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, anger, it's what we do with our anger, right? And Elizabeth,
4: I'm sure had lots of anger and she channeled it very well. So yeah, we can uh, definitely take some lessons from her. Um, all right. So I thought we would wade now into... Dr. McFarland (laughs) um he's a complicated character in this story um and so I just wanted to ask like generally like was he all good all bad all you know I mean I don't know that anyone thinks he's all bad but are there arguments for goodness in
3: him (laughs) maybe
4: I have hands. I can't see.
5: Uh, all right. Uh, Bruce and then Sam. I guess my, just my basic thought is he was a person of his time within the power structure that he was kind of on top. And the same concept comes when you're going like, does the Q15 or the, Top 15 leaders of the Mormon church believe the crap. They're in the power structure. They've got perks and position and status that is keeping anybody from saying, oh, you know, this is bullshit. I'm going to leave and stuff like that. So then you kind of have to cut people slack for what, you know, the water that they're swimming in. But then also at some point, you've got to say no. You've got to make changes. And You know, where she was brave. I think we all need to be more brave. And then we all need to be analyzing, okay, and where am I being the kind of abusive, controlling person in all my relationships? Just kind of a couple of my thoughts.
4: I mean, um. Like you have enough people tell you that you're the expert then you start to believe it. Right. (laughs) Um, Sam.
13: Yeah. So Dr. McFarland is one of the more interesting people. Um, Of course, Elizabeth was number one, but when I read in the back how he, the doctor was even more sinister than Theophila than her husband. And then I started reading the book and I'm like, Hmm, because at first he didn't seem like such a bad guy compared to what she had come through And then you just see the layers being peeled off more and more as the book progresses. And it's this sinister of like, of a darker kind. It's not just always in your face, but it came back to bite Elizabeth and luckily she was able to bite back. But it's almost like this tyranny of his own um, confidence, you know, and he, he was so dead set that he was doing it he had this, the superiority of, you know, I have to be like the quasi husband for all of these women, you know, and it was just, I was just in shock. Like it, <laughs> like it was such an eye opener for me. Like, I'm so happy I read this, but like, I like, and he, you know, because I was really like, I was like, well, he didn't seem like that bad. But then as you get through the whole book, you're like, oh my goodness, you're just, you know, you felt all that, the anger towards him and I was thinking you know it's crazy He, he actually thought he was doing good and he he always considered her insane he always he he had blinders on and so it made me think that the tyranny of his own certitude and I was like How are my thoughts and I'm having to like take a a step back, whereas I'm trying to like analyze, like separate myself from my thoughts and whether it's um, shame or anger or whatever, like I'm quickly to forgive myself. And it's like I am not always just my thoughts. And it's like, am I making the highest decision I can right now? Because there's so much mixed signal like there's so much messaging and programming that we all have just by being alive on this earth, you know? And so it's like it's it's making me want to, you know, not like overthink everything to the point that you can't live in exact, you know, but like, but that you just take a step back and think, I'm like, is it my programming talking right now? Is it this? Is it that? And just because you know, these things still exist within society, within us and everything. And so, I don't know, he was, from a psychological point of view, it was, he was a very fascinating character for me. So I just wanted to share that.
4: Yeah, no, and, um, you know, it made me think of conversation I had with someone um, about how they like, they like hanging out with other ex-Mormons because we tend to be very curious people, <laughs> And so we just want to like, we want to figure out like help why people, what makes people tick and where they're coming from. And that's not like a guarantee, obviously, like and there's a lot that goes into that. But I do think like we have suddenly realized like, oh, I've got to like question everything that I thought was absolute. And so I, I, I feel like when I meet new people and even if they have different, like religious views or political views or things like that. Like, I really want to learn like, okay, like, tell me about that. Like, where did, how did you come to that? And things like that. And I think that um, he was the opposite, right? Like he had this preconceived notion and all the questions he asked her were just in his uh, attempt to confirm his his, uh, hypothesis that she was insane. Any other thoughts about Dr. McFarland? What did everyone think about his wife? Any thoughts about his wife? okay, I taught Sunday school, I can wait, just kidding. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting how at first his wife was, you know, kind of a fan. Oh, Melissa, yeah, don't make me talk too much.
17: I, I think the hard thing for me in reading the book is, you know, at first you think they're actually not necessarily having an affair but going that direction and he's like going behind his wife's back and it's like holy crap she's not seeing it and then to find out she's kind of in on it and knows that her husband's manipulating the situation and manipulating the patients by pretending to be um that kind of figure in their lives and so then you know but then at the end didn't she kind of like be on Elizabeth's side and help if I'm remembering it it's been like month or two so
4: like briefly there was a period um when she was in like the worst ward and and he was being like kind of mean to her um then the wife the wife was friendly toward elizabeth and would like give her tea and things like that but then when he started letting her ride again and elizabeth and McFarlane were spending a lot of time together then the wife got um, I think
17: jealous and started being more mean I don't know I I just at first I felt bad for her and then I was just kind of like frustrated
6: with her too and
17: but I mean again it's you know the water they were swimming in the wife is submissive and you know lets the husband do whatever he wants and she you know needs to be protected by him so she puts up with whatever and so it was just kind of like I mean I get it it's the water they're swimming in it's the time it's all those things but also it's like come on girlie get a backbone, tell him no, you know, so it was, it was hard. It was hard.
3: Yeah. And I think, um, his,
4: his behavior was also reflected. I don't know, like you get a certain type of person to work in that sort of place. Um, and we saw that become even worse with like the labor shortage, uh, during the war and they were just getting like they were desperate for people to work in the wards and they started getting people who were more like abusive. And, and I thought that that was really interesting because you know I'm, I'm actually starting a master's in social work right now. And, you know, one of the things you really have to work on when you, uh, are entering that sphere is understanding like where people are coming from and making sure that you're not putting yourself as like the expert on that person's life and and um i'm trying to like lift them up rather than like boss them around and so like that was obviously not the kind of person that they were getting <laughs> to, to help out there uh yeah bruce
5: this just came to mind when you think about the um what filters for people that go into different jobs, like, you know, who who manages an insane asylum and how wh- what their motivations and rewards and punishments are, in in dealing with everything, the thought comes back to who rises up in the church, and I think the term is church broke. Um, you know, a person who expresses their own opinion is not going to move up through the ranks. And it's people who, you know, toe the line and show deference to those above and, you know, talk themselves into or believe the narrative and stuff. And I, I would think in, you know, with mental institutions and probably a lot of our institutions, it's like who who wants who really wants the job of being president of the United States? I mean, that's got to be, you know, you, you take a look at, at A president when he goes into office and then when they come out and they have just aged terribly so yeah the the concept of church broke when you guys were talking just kind of came to my mind
4: yeah i mean and back then like he didn't really even have to have actual credentials (laughs) like he just like was he just hey i'm interested in this so i'll be I'll be in charge of insane people. And, you know, he just set himself up as an expert. And for some reason that was okay. <laughs> like, um, and I do think like when people, we don't value the work of the, like the, the lower people in, in the insane asylum, I think it's still a similar situation with you know, psychiatric wards and things like we don't value those workers enough because they are They're not necessarily like specially trained. Like they're just uh, medical aides typically and they don't get paid well. They don't get treated well. I mean, it is an insane asylum like, or, you know, back then. And like now it's, you know, a psychiatric ward. Um, And I do think that that doesn't attract, first of all, people who care a lot. um, And it also doesn't attract or it doesn't uh, nurture maybe the best in people, like, cause they're not getting any positive feedback and they're not getting monetary recognition, you know, all those things. And I think that that can really affect the type of people who go into it. And we see that with other, you know, areas too. Like we see it with like schools, like teachers right now, like the good ones are quitting because they aren't being appreciated and, and they're getting punished for being like a good teacher and trying to do their best by kids. And and so, yeah, I think that that can really affect the quality of employee. Uh, Shauna, do you have some thoughts?
15: Yeah, as I was, I actually listened to the book, didn't read it. Um, As I was listening, first of all,
3: when she was going for, hit, when she was, you know, for lack of a better word, loving on Dr. McFarland,
15: whatever his name was, the doctor. Um, I just wanted to scream, don't trust him. But uh, as far as his training is stuff, we have to remember, of course, this was 1860. There wasn't much in the way of psychiatric uh, training and understanding of psychiatry. I have a daughter who's a therapist, and I have a daughter who's a psychiatric nurse part- practitioner. And she her what she does is she um, prescribes, she's a prescriber of medications. And um, the vibe that I got from, wait, let me back up. The vibe that I got from the doctor was what we now hear about surgeons and a specific surgeon in general. I know somebody who was a nurse with him way back when. And yes, he he was the uh, god
4: complex is what they like yes to call it. <laughs> the
15: god complex and and that's what i kind of got from the vibe from that doctor was that he has that same kind of a complex of that he knows everything and everybody needs to deference him and um but it's not it, now now the understanding you know there's so much more out there and i don't oh I, I don't know that, um, that it's the same by and large in the psychiatric community these days. Um, Daniel, I, you're not a surgeon, are you? I hope I didn't offend.
3: I'm <laughs> Oh, Mickey
15: Mouse voice again. <laughs> he's not a
1: surgeon, he's a chipmunk. Melissa's <laughs> <laughs> well, husband is a surgeon, I think.
15: Okay. Well, and, and, and actually my daughter's brother-in-law is a surgeon and she's like, yeah, he's totally went into the, there's certain the surgeons of impact, you know, that they attract, it attracts. And she's like, he's a great guy. And I know him. He is a great guy. So that's no, anyway,
17: I'll stop. Well, to be fair, my husband isn't like that at all, but I think, he, you know, he's noted, like they say, oh, you're not like most surgeons. So, you know he is not like that but to be fair when people talk to him about it they mention the fact that he isn't typical so i'm not saying that you're wrong but that was definitely the vibe
15: i got from that's what i thought my where my brain went as soon as i was you know listening to what he had to say
14: all right chandra yeah so like hearing that and because i so i haven't gotten all the way to the book where I've like gotten to his wife and fully, I'm in the part that like more of the beginning hearing him and how he's for giving this different perspective of himself to, to Elizabeth and what it really turns out to be and what she's thinking her relationship is with him in the beginning. But um, with me, my husband, as we go to the schools and um, we so our children have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder which is not super known, but it is like more prevalent than autism and um, Down syndrome and a lot of the syndromes out there. Um, it's not really fully recognized in the United States. And anyways, me and my husband have taken the six month course on it. We do, we do support calls twice a week with other families and people from the group that we took. I have my official certificate of like doing it all. And when we go into those IEP meetings, um, you know, learning about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder has like so fully given me a better understanding of other disabilities that I don't fully know about, but I know there's a lot of secondary disorders that go into other disabilities. And it has fully put me in advocacy mode for um, kids with disabilities and people with disabilities and sticking up for them. And the school says that we are not. My husband has a a master's degree in college, right? I have my associate's. I have two years of college, right? But we are not educated enough to teach the teachers on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and that is one hundred percent because of me, because they don't like me. Um, It's because of my outspokenness. Because you know, if I there's a kid in one of the special education classes that has dyslexia and they don't know what to do with them so they just throw them him there and and so I've connected with other parents and talked to them and helped advocate for their kids and um now the schools think that because I'm trying to like help these kids and speak for them and I'm I'm not conceding to them putting me down and not helping them that like I can't go in and be, I can't, I can't even be my son's aide because there's always a reason, Oh, you're the advocate. So we don't like the advocates to help, or we don't like these things, but it definitely, um, I think anybody, I think even men, right. When you show, um, if you are educated in something, if you do know something, unless you concede to a specific narrative of following the person in charge, you're very much dismissed. And it is sad. It is sad. You know, when you talk about those, you know, maybe the workers that were in the, the mental institution. And yeah, it does take out the people who care and love and want to fight for the health and well-being of people. And I just can see that in, in that in the conversation that you guys are having.
4: Yeah, I think um, I think it's really hard to to keep it up. Like, you know, we talked about Elizabeth being inspiring because, you know, when we're fighting against systems, uh, it can be exhausting. And I think that's why it's so important to, you know, be aware of your own, uh, limits, um, and take breaks where you need to. Um, and she wasn't constantly fighting. Um, there were, there were periods where she, um, was able to do what she loved, or there were things that, you know, buoyed her up, Um, but, but yeah, we gotta, gotta take care of ourselves. And, um, one of the things that there's a quote that I loved was to, uh, that I think a lot of us will relate to said to be lost to reason is a greater misfortune than to be lost to virtue and the scorn, which the world attaches to it is greater, um, And so, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, people thinking we have lost our reason or or, our sanity by maybe choosing a different path. Um, But where she went was the author was going with bringing this up in her study guide was That the American Psychological Association recently stated that only 25% of adults with symptoms of mental illness believe that people will be caring and sympathetic toward them. Um, So I think that what you were saying about, you know, being the advocate and, you know, pushing against that, like you are, it may not feel like it sometimes. I'm sure you're making such a difference for not just your own children, but the other children that will that are in that in that school and will be in that school in the future. So I'm really grateful for what you're doing because I, I think it's just it's really great when people can push back when they can use their strengths and push back against things. Um. All right. What, what does anyone want to talk about? Um, like her Elizabeth's work with like politicians and getting. Legislation passed and what she did with that.
3: How many people got to the end of the book? <laughs> Just kidding. Daniel.
9: <laughs> Can you hear me? That sounds okay. All right. All right. Um, one of the things I thought was how she learned to manipulate men uh, at the time. So like the legislators, instead of going in and being like, this is what you have to do. Listen to me. This is what you have to do. She's like, okay, what I'm going to do is go in and say, listen, we need your help. We need you, legis- you big, strong, powerful legislators to protect women from, from being taken advantage of and from being you know, abused. We need your help. And it, it was really interesting to me just to see how she just completely manipulated. She was like, okay, I, I'm... I realize taking these people head on is not going to help me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to appeal to their, you know, their patriarchal sensibilities and, 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 and use them and work within the system. I thought that was really interesting and clever of her.
3: Yeah. I, I love how you described that. That's perfect.
4: Uh, Sam.
13: Well, I was trying to find the quote, but there was somewhere where she's like, I was not, actuated by self-interest alone anymore it was the larger cause um sorry I'm in the airport so but um like there was even that moment where as much as she wanted her kids back she's like I need to focus all my energies and helping these women in the insane asylum and she put all her energies in and uh she just worked so hard like going door to door and and in that world that was so male dominated um but there were there were certain quotes that she had she was inspired by a sense of duty and a vision. And there was a quote, I was trying, she, she, it was something like, um, duties are ours, events are gods, you know? So she's like, like there were moments where she did wallow a little bit in despair, but she didn't last there very long because she was inspired by that vision, that greater purpose. And she's, there was a part into a four. she said, she sat up straighter, her mind not contained by the four walls of her ward, but flying high over the land of the free, sowing past cornfield fields and ascending over vistas of desert and mountain and trees. Like she saw a vision of a better future rising in the horizon. And I think the fact that this book was had the backdrop of the civil war. It was just so moving. And the, the rights of the slaves and then the rights of women. And like she just had that vision. And she um she was planting seeds and she saw some bear fruit. And and her work is now. We're all reading, and we're having a book club on her, on her life, and it's just beautiful. So she's the harvest continues, but she was she had that duty and that vision, and it 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 made her a political, um, you know, strength. So that that was very beautiful.
4: Yeah, thank you. I love how you summarize that, Rebecca.
1: Yeah, I loved you. The way that you said that, Sam, that was perfect. So, and to speak to that, and also I think what Daniel said, and I see now a comment um, in the chat by Shauna, I think as women in the church, you recognize that you must work within that system. You have to. How many of us have been in organizations where we talk with other women and say, okay, they're never going to let us do this if we pitch it this way? But if we say we have to, you know, there's all this maneuvering because everything has to be okay. Even though you're in a primary presidency or relief study presidency or young women's, you still have have to get it checked off by the patriarchy, right? So you do, you learn to, to just pitch it in a certain way. You learn to flatter, you learn to conjole so that you can get, you know, like Elizabeth, what you need to have done. I mean, you could relate to that so completely. And Shauna in the chat is talking about the primary voice. Of course, that's part of it. Of course, you can't go in there and go, look, guys, this is what we're going to do. I got a great idea. No, you go, so
4: I think
3: put on a little a lipstick.
1: Yeah, put on yeah, a lot of lipstick. I wear a lot. I still do as a post-Mormon. But no, I think we all, we do it. And, and it, I get angry at myself as a post-Mormon that I still do that. <laughs> I feel like I can't go right at things. I have to do that. I learned to be just a master manipulator by growing up as a woman in the church. And I don't know if the rest of you understand what I mean by that, but I learned those skills and they're still in there. And I it's very hard to shake. And then I started thinking about just the membership in general, if you guys are familiar with just happened um, over in the UK, uh, where the Nemo, the Brit Britvengers, um, 21st century saints. So they're trying to get this, the church to change this policy and child protection and to make people follow the law and have background checks for child, anybody that works with children, right? So it's not happening. You can't go to the leadership and say, you have to follow the law. You have to change this. And that never worked. What did they do? Nemo and the 21st century saints, they kind of did a little manipulation. They sent letters out to the leaders and said, Do you realize that you're on the hook if something happens in your ward? You know, they they know that you cannot go straight at leadership and tell them to make a change. You have to be a little manipulative. For a greater good, but you have to go through the backdoor channels and and accomplish it that way. And so it's really sad that nobody can just go straight at great ideas, things that protect children, things that make it better for women, things for everybody all around. You cannot do that in the church, unfortunately, at this time. So it all really resonated with me and my experiences, and even what's happening today. I thought,
4: yeah, I mean, or if you do go directly at it, um, like um, his name is escaping me, Sam. Sam Young yes yeah yes like yeah. he went directly at it and we oh. see you know that he got excommunicated and yes there was yeah. change from what he did but like there were but he was on the altar for it yeah no, like that's he, exactly it yeah yep yeah Bruce
5: yeah when Daniel was talking about you know <clears throat> managing the situations and stuff it came it came to my mind you know In everything we do, we have to manage and manipulate the situation into the outcome that we want. When I was a missionary, gosh, this is 45 years ago in Chile. I had a companion who was really a pretty nice guy. I looked him up, he lives in Orem. I hadn't looked him up in 45 years. Um, We would read uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And we'd read it together. Our mission was pretty lax we didn't have lots of rules on what you could read we could go to movies we could go out to lunch and dinner with people you know it was very lax at the time but we would read a chapter and then practice you know when we were knocking doors you try this technique and we were just managing the situation to get the outcome that we wanted and you know every member, of missionary, every ex-Mormon, a missionary, you know, I, my, most of my family's still in. And I, I just want to like oh, tell them, okay, read the CES letter, all this stuff. And that doesn't work. So I've kind of switched to being the, um, openly ex-Mormon fun gay uncle. And every time I'm with family, I was up seeing up in Utah with Rebecca and Tom and Landon, for pride this year and i made sure around my family i took all my nieces and nephews out to dinner i went to see my cousins but i i changed my pride watch band every day and especially the younger kids notice that oh you've got a different watch band on today and i'm just hoping that okay that plants the seed that the fun gay uncle and i've told some of the older ones i'm going like if you want to talk about anything or you need somebody to talk to I'm the person you can talk to. And just kind of leave it at that. So, you know, that's my strategy and trying to manipulate my believing Mormon family. And it is started some very interesting discussions with like, nephews, wives who start talking to me about how, you know, their lives aren't quite what they had hoped for. And It goes pretty deep into the discussion because then they kind of found out that I'm a person that they can talk to. So that's my strategy at manipulating things to get the outcome that I want to have at least me as a resource. If somebody wants a different life than Mormonism has provided them. So that was just some of my thoughts.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, the word manipulate is has negative connotations, but like, I've, yeah, like you were saying, like everyone has desired outcomes in their lives, and they're going to use strategies and tactics to to get them there. Um, like I think about, <laughs> I was a really good Sunday school teacher, Relief Society teacher, Young Women's teacher. <laughs> I was think like the calling the calling callings I always had were teaching assignments, and I think that was because I was really good at, you know, leading a discussion and getting an outcome right and there's a little bit of regret maybe that I was so good at like helping people feel their feels and feel good about being at church but um but I can still use that skill and it's not that I and I wasn't I had good intentions you know I don't I wasn't being evil um, but I can still use those skills in ways in my life that will be have positive impact and I think that that's kind of you have to just reflect on why we're doing what we're doing and how, how we're using our strengths. She had strengths and communicating and um, I, my bachelor's degrees in public relations and a lot of people have negative feelings about public relations because they feel like they're being manipulated. But, you know, again, like we are communicators. That's what sets us aside from the, the animal world. And, and we use those, skills to, to enact change, whether good or positive or good or bad. I mean, so just kind of food for thought. I think Elizabeth used it pretty well. Um, well, uh, we're getting pretty close to being done. Are there any, just like last thoughts? Anyone? Yeah. Daniel.
9: You hear me now. Okay. Yes. Okay. So one one thought um, I had was I went and I read NPR's review of the book and they brought up some things and they had them left out um, that maybe the author in this one gave too shiny a picture uh, of uh, was Elizabeth, was that her name, right? Um, because it turns out, for instance, like she also held deeply racist views, <laughs> like writing in one of her her many political pamphlets. Quote, it is my candid opinion that no southern slave ever suffered more spiritual agony than I have suffered, as I am more developed in my moral and spiritual nature than they are; therefore, more capable of suffering. You know, it just so there was a whole other side to her, and, and you know, maybe a product of your time and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's super important for us as, as we read that you know nobody's perfect. You know, like we, we she did some great stuff, interesting stuff. But also keep things in 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 perspective. You know, people have flaws. You know, she's 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 no savior. You know, there's there's good and bad in people. And maybe that's one critique of this book is that the author didn't really give a well-rounded picture. You know, the author kind of had a goal. It wasn't just a about the author, the author wanted to say, look at all this amazing stuff she did, without also pointing out, well, she was also super racist.
4: Right, and I think if we look at a lot of uh, women's rights activists of the time that's similar thing and you'll see that's a major criticism of feminism um, before second wave feminism is that it was for white women, so thank you for bringing that up that's a
3: really good point. Any other last thoughts.
5: enjoyed the discussion
3: thank you
9: thanks cindy
1: yeah it was really good thank you so much cindy that was amazing clap everybody put your clap on so <laughs> for i i wanted of you to can. point out i wanted to point out too i forgot to mention at the beginning that i emailed back and forth with kate moore and she was just lovely i know that you cindy said that you had um you had had her on when you had discussed this book before. So she said she would be more than happy to come on today, but then she said, I'm on holiday. So she did answer some of our email questions back and forth, but I just wanted everybody to know that she was, she was very lovely. The author was as far as being really excited that we were reading it and really excited just about the existence of the book club and the concept behind it and what we were doing. So that's always fun for me to connect with authors and, and just to thank you so much to Cindy, because it was, it was an amazing, discussion a really important discussion and it could have gone in so many different directions and and I think that it went in the best direction possible and and I loved it I learned a lot from it so um that's it for the woman they could not silence it was absolutely incredible if you did not finish reading the book Keep going, get get done on that. And we did find our slide that we were missing at the beginning. Um, Here it is again, just really quick announcement for next Saturday. That's the logo of the Entrada Institute. You can go on Facebook and this is going to be live streamed. It's an incredible play called Mountain Meadows written by a never Mormon U of U um, professor named Deborah 3d and so it starts at seven o'clock um yes. a few of us in the book club are actually going in person down to tory so it's not too late if anybody wants to come join us if you're from that area or want a, a caravan down the tickets are free and you'll be able to hear this incredible readers theater which i believe is now going to be in an outdoor setting so beautiful setting incredible play it's going to be amazing but if you can't make it down there because it is tory <laughs> tiny little nothing um Uh, no offense to any of our viewers from Tori. Sorry if you're from there, but anyway, we're excited to go. Um, you can watch it live and try to institute on Facebook. So anyway, thank you for finding that slide. Melissa, we have so many dang slides. So now we're we're going to.
5: Rebecca, that's seven o'clock mountain time.
1: Yes. Sorry. It's seven o'clock mountain mountain time. And I'm. Yes. All over the country. I always talk in mountain time. That's, and I think it says on there. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. Time seven o'clock mountain time. Yes. And I will put this on Facebook. As soon as I find the link, when they put it out there, I will put that there too. And I'll email it out. Um, and I'll probably do it several times this week because I'm not kidding. This is an incredible play. Several of us got to see it. It just kind of popped up on our radar. It was a packed house, a very limited run. And we were thinking, oh, we're so sad that no one else is going to get to see this. And then we heard about this. So I said, I'm going to evangelize this through the roof because it is a very hey, important play. Her. And I, I've i interviewed her. And Steve, Why, if you're still on, Steve of Mormon Book Reviews and I interviewed her. and talked to Deborah. She's doing a panel discussion at Sunstone is coming up the end of this month if i'm i'm planning on going i know several other book club members are going um if you are let's all let's all hook up while we're there um but yeah she's an incredible woman and so interesting from a never mormon position she took a job as a law professor she moved to utah she's like oh what's this story all about and just started diving into history so her and her perspective is through the lens of juanita brooks a faithful lds member who is a champion of history. She wants to get this information out and yet she's blocked at every turn. Her membership is threatened, you know, so it's kind of a threefold story where you have Juanita, you have flashbacks to the Mountain Meadows, you have people, flashbacks to, to post uh, mountain meadows where family members are realizing, oh my gosh, this is a generational secret. So anyway, it's the best thing I've ever seen as far as explaining to people what what it was all about. So anyway, so much evangelizing, but please next Saturday. Now we'll move on to our next book, a preview. Luann is going to tell us for a minute about this really interesting and, and unusual and amazing book that we're
3: reading for August, the unfolding of language. Let's take it away, Luann. Okay, I always have to
18: read, uh, write something and then read it, but uh, anyway, so far I've only read a little of the book, The Unfolding of Language by Guy Dutcher. It's an exploration to find uh, the mysterious and lost history of language, where today's words are somewhat helpful, but not always. It is a linguistical exploration of grammar, I like grammar, of phonics. My eyes always glossed over when we studied phonics in school, and they still do. Um, It covers etymology. Um, Etymology fascinates me. And add to this morphology, syntax, semantics, and likely social linguistics, dialectology, psycholinguistics, computational linguistics, historical comparative linguistics, and applied linguistics. Although salting and peppering the technical information with a good-natured humor, great illustrations, and engaging stories, the book offers information that's too complex for me. And I've been panicking about sharing, being the discussion leader for this book. Uh, Then I read a certain entry, which offers clues about a major force in the constant shifting of language, and uh, I would like to share that entry. Here on the island, the sea, so much sea, it spills over from time to time. It says yes, then no, then no. It says yes in blue and foam in a gallop. It says no, then no. It cannot be still. My name is sea, it repeats, but not uh, striking a stone, but not convincing it. Then with seven green tongues, of seven green tigers over seven green seas, it caresses it, kisses it, wets it, and pounds on its chest, repeating its own name over and over again. Well, if this book has some poetry in it, I love it. And somehow sharing will be okay. I really recommend you read this book. I think you'll love it too. And if you struggle with some parts, I think there'll be something in it for you. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Luann. Yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be really interesting. And I do, I have the book
1: right here and I do see that it might be a situation where. You want to have the hard copy and audio if you're if you're listening to that, because there are a lot of graphics and um, things that maybe make it more clear. But I think this will be really interesting for us. And then, as I said, that's the end of the up until August. And then we'll start with our new season, starting with our Mountain Meadows. Oh, my goodness. All things Mountain Meadows. Um, very quickly, as we end other media on the radar, we always want to make our book club members aware of other things that are fun. Um, I curate the Good Media Club, which is where I kind of find series and movies and things that have to do with Mormonism or high demand, high control situations. And I kind of put those there. It's on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to find that and join, that's kind of fun. Um, we have the Good Book Club podcast, which are these uh, meetings um, in audio form. And so if you just want to listen to past ones, um, you can find us any, any podcast format or platform that you like, and then you can enjoy meetings from the past which is always fun. Um, we're also on YouTube, the search, the good book clubs for post Mormons, and you can enjoy past episodes that we have recorded and put on YouTube. That's always fun. Um, also we have Mormonish Landon and I run this little podcast, uh, living a joyful life on the other side of Mormonism, where we interview interesting people, lots of people from book club, <laughs> come on lots of topics and things. And that's always fun. We have episodes a couple times a week, so you can search Mormonish podcast on YouTube. And you can find us there. And um, if anybody w- is, has attended today and isn't a member of the book club and wants to know more, um, you can email me at Rebecca Biblioteca. That's at the good book club at mail.com. You can find us on Facebook. That's our logo. You can find us on Instagram. Um, message us, just connect if you'd like to join because we have a lot of fun. And as you can tell, a really great group of people. That's the best part. So interesting. So many different backgrounds. We learned so much. Um, if you do email me at the good book club at mail.com, check your spam. For some reason, it always goes Straight there. So I think that's the end of our slides. And now we tend to just kind of stay on and hang out and talk.